If you could turn with me firstly to page 115, we're going to be looking at Exodus 19 and then later on we're going to be flipping over to 1 Peter. But firstly, Exodus 19, 1 to 10. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole world is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. And then over to 1 Peter, chapter 2, from verse 1. Therefore rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in the scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So please uh, turn with me to Exodus 19 in your Bibles. And let's join together in prayer. Our Father, we thank you that we have the privilege of being able to gather here this morning as your people, uh, that we have the, the time to be able to draw aside and to read your word together and think about it. And Father, would you pray now that by your spirit you would help us to better understand it, understand you, 
and understand your purposes in this world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I was born in Glasgow. I came to Australia when I was four years old. And um, I'm very proud of the fact that I'm Scottish. Um, When I was at school, my brother and I would go to the school canteen and the ladies there would actually politely fight with each other uh, to serve myself and my brother because they wanted to hear these these wee laddies um, speak with this strange Scottish accent and so on. I can imagine them just twittering away um, with each other after they'd served us. I'm really proud to be Scottish. As far as I'm concerned, I am the real deal. Um, You might have Scottish descent, you might have had a grandfather who was from Scotland, but hang on, I am a real Scot. But about ten years ago, a rumour started to spread amongst our wider family that we actually had Italian blood. Uh, My brother and I were a bit sort of shattered. Hang on, we're Scots. We're not Italians, they're nice people, that's fair enough, but hang on, we are Scots, we are the real deal. And we sort of felt that our identity had been a bit interfered with. And I was back there in Scotland in 2013 for the first time in umpteen uh, decades. And my uncles told me about these relatives that came to the house. They thought they were relatives who spoke with another accent and they thought maybe they were Italian. Earlier this year, I had one of those significant birthdays and my family gave me a DNA kit. And I thought, right, let's do this DNA test and let's settle this question once for all. So, you know, you get your little tube, your saliva, you spit into it, you send it off and you wait six weeks and the results come back and you open them up and I'm a Scot. No Italian blood whatsoever. I'm an ordinary garden variety Scot with some Irish thrown in as well and I suspected that all along. But I've now got a clear picture of who I am, where I'm from, my identity and my roots and so on. But what about us as a church? Uh, What's our identity? What's God's purpose for us in a world that that so often seems to be so hostile towards God, at least in Australia at present? So I thought tonight we might try and trace some of that, starting with Exodus chapter 19, to learn what God is doing with his people throughout history. Because Exodus 19 opens with the nation of Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai. Uh, Try and put yourself on the page of the Bible at this point. Three months earlier, you were in Egypt. Three months earlier, one night, Pharaoh sent his angel and suddenly you were just thrust out of Egypt and it's taking you all those months to come to this point where you're standing at the foot of Mount Sinai and here you are and the ground trembles, there's smoke, there's fire, there's a thick cloud on the top of the mountain and you don't know what to expect next. And to make things worse, your leader Moses has gone up the mountain But now he's come back down with a message from God. And this is the message that he gives you. Verse 4 of Exodus 19. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And you can see there in the words that I've highlighted, that's why God called Egypt, called Israel out of Egypt in the first place. It wasn't just for her own sake. It wasn't that God saw Israel being oppressed in Egypt and thought, right, let's rescue Israel from Egypt. 
and then he, you know, he'd then put him in the promised land and say, it's fantastic, now you're safe, now enjoy a happy life. No, God actually had a purpose uh, behind that. And, and you can see the purpose there in verse 5. You shall be my treasure possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. Nothing special about Israel that made her stand out. She wasn't particularly strong, but God chooses her out of all the nations to be his treasure possession. And he gives her a special role in verse 6. She is to be a holy nation. What does it mean for her to be holy? It doesn't mean that she's without sin. Far from that, it means that God has set her apart from the nations with a special purpose to belong to himself and to live in front of the nations in such a way that they can see that she's different so that they're attracted to God. So Israel is set apart so she can serve the nations of the world. Now, if you know your Bible history at this point, you might think back to Genesis chapter 12, uh, when God said to Abraham that all the peoples on earth will be blessed, all the nations, all the families will be blessed through you. And here in Exodus chapter 19, we can see that start to come true. Because God doesn't just have Israel on view when he's dealing with Israel. He actually has the whole world on view. That's what's happening here. She is to be a blessing as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation for the benefit of the whole world. So question, why did God call Israel to himself? Answer, to be a light to the nations. Question, how will she do that? Answer, by being different to the nations around her. So she will have one day of rest in the week. She'll wholly devote herself to the Lord. She will make sure that she cares for the widows and the, and the fatherless. She'll hold the Lord front and centre in her national life. She won't be dishonest in her transactions. She'll live up to the fact that God has called her to be his treasure possession. She's meant, in many ways, to be the modern nation. The nations are meant to look to Israel and say, what is so different about you that your life is so blessed as a nation? Tell us your secret. You can see something of that. When the Queen of Sheba comes to Solomon, you know, the Bible says her, her breath was taken away because she was so overwhelmed by the things that Solomon had and the way that Israel uh, was blessed as a nation. So when God calls Israel, he has all of humanity on view. He calls Israel for the benefit of the nations. So, did Israel have a mission? Well, no and yes. She didn't run Judaism explain courses or, you know, hand up booklets, two ways to sacrifice or anything like that. But yes, she did have a mission in terms of the fact that she was to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So God wanted her to stand out. God wanted her to stand out in such a way that the nations would say, what makes you different? And the answer would be, we worship the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. So think, for example, of Psalm 67. Psalm 67 starts off, May God be gracious to us and bless us, and make his face to shine upon us. And that seems like a, you know, a fairly good prayer for people to pray who follow God. But there's a further reason behind that, because the psalm goes on to say, That your ways may be known among all on earth, that your ways may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. 
And that's where you start to see this, this theme come through. It's interesting to read the, the Old Testament particularly and just look for that theme where God has the nations on view. And, and it's an amazing thing when you look for it. You see it again and again and again. But you know the sad, sad and tragic tale. How Israel departed from the Lord. How she went off to follow gods of stone and wood. Gods that were no gods at all. I mean, here she was, she had the true living God, but she goes and she follows the Baals and the Ashtaroths and so on. She's got the genuine God, and yet she is unfaithful to him and follows gods that are no gods at all. And so God, what does he do? He doesn't stand idly by. For the sake of his name, he sends her into exile. Look at the reasoning behind this in Ezekiel 20. But I withheld my hand, and for the sake of my name, I did what would keep it from being profaned in the eyes of the nations in whose sight I brought them out. You see, God couldn't have Israel saying on the one hand, well, you know, we follow the Lord, he's the maker of heaven and earth, and on the other hand, dishonouring his name by also following other gods. And so that's why he sent her into exile. She failed to be a kingdom of priests. She failed to be a holy nation. She failed to be, to be light in this world. She'd lost the very thing that made her different, her exclusive allegiance to God. You see, the tragedy is this. She became just like her surrounding culture. So that if an Israelite went to somebody else from another nation and said, you should follow the Lord God, they could say, well, what's the difference? We, we both worship, you know, uh, Ashtaroth and Baal and so on, all these other gods. Uh, the difference with you is you've just got Yahweh as your extra god as well. We're really not that much different. One of the dangers I think that we face in Australia today is the Christian church. Is I wonder if we are that different. I wonder if our neighbours can look at us and think, what makes you different? Or if they look at us and think, well, that person, that woman that goes to church on a Sunday they're just like me they've got the same dreams, you know nice car, nice house, nice job you know, kids with a, with a happy life etc how are we different? how does it show up in the way that we live? and can our workmates our friends, our family can they see that we really are different and not just for the sake of somehow being you know, just religious and going to church on Sunday can they see that we are different? What hope is there for Israel? Uh, throughout the Old Testament, God keeps running what I think are almost advertisements uh, for, the, for the hope that is there. And uh, he talks about a day when the nations, when the Gentiles will come, and they will belong to his people. And how is that going to happen? It's going to happen through Jesus. Uh, so listen to what he says in Isaiah about the Lord Jesus, the servant. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of of the earth. And what does Jesus say when he starts his ministry? I am the light of the world. It's a fulfilment of Isaiah chapter 49. That's a pretty staggering claim. Israel, in one sense, she was meant to be the light. And Jesus is the light who doesn't fail. He's the one who follows God perfectly. How do we know that the nations will one day come and worship God? Well, look at this. Luke chapter 13. This is what Jesus says. And people will come from east and west and north and south 
and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. One of the phenomena that took place in the 20th century was this, this whole shift. If you'd gone to church in the, in the 20, early 20th century, it would have usually been in a European or Western uh, setting, perhaps you know, in Europe or in the UK or North America or Australia. That's where the, the centre of Christianity was in those days. But here we are 100 years later. Where is the centre of Christianity now? It's in Africa. It's in Asia. It's in South America. There's been this massive shift from the northern hemisphere to the southern hemisphere. If you've been following recently, a couple of months ago, the GAFCON conference, the Global Anglican Futures Conference, that was where many of the uh, worldwide evangelical Anglicans got together and said to the, to, the, uh, to the mother back in England, look, we are not going to compromise on the issue of sexuality. He had the daughter, the African church largely, saying to the mother, the Anglican church in England, look, we're sticking with the Bible. Why aren't you? And they said, we are the majority of the world's Anglicans. And the majority of them are not Anglo anymore. There's been this massive shift. And so we see the words of Jesus here are actually coming true. And it's talking about Gentile believers that have come in from, you know, Santiago and Cape Town and Khartoum and Baghdad. This is where where history's heading. To the day when all of God's people will gather around his throne in worship. So what does this mean for us? Uh, Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2 uh, that we read earlier on. Uh, The Apostle Peter is writing to the churches in in modern-day Turkey. And uh, this is what he says in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. Whoops. No, I shouldn't have put that in there. Or should I? Okay. He says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. And so what Peter does here is he takes those very words that God spoke to Israel at Mount Sinai and he applies them to us. He applies them to us. This is simply staggering. Because God now calls upon you and I to serve the world as a royal priesthood and a holy nation. This is our DNA. We are to declare to the world that Jesus Christ is Lord. In the Old Testament, the basic model of mission was this. The nations would come to Israel. But now in the New Testament, the basic model is this. We go to the nations. The gospel goes out as we tell people about the Lord Jesus Christ. As we live lives that are so attractive that people grab hold of our coat and say, please, tell me about the Lord Jesus Christ. But this means that we must live as the people of God. This means that we mustn't um, take up, as I said earlier on, the values, the priorities of those around us. We need to be distinctive, not odd, but distinctive in the way that we love, the way that we care, and the way that we set our priorities. Because this is the God who's called us out of darkness into his marvellous light, and we don't want to go back to darkness. It is an enormous privilege to live for Christ in this world and to point people to Christ, not just with our words, but also with our lives, backing up our words as well. So how can you get involved? 
Well, this morning I've talked about three, three ways of getting involved. Uh, one of them was praying. That's very important. If we give missionaries a million dollars, we send them off to go and serve overseas, but we don't pray for them, we've actually failed them. The second way to get involved uh, is, is giving. One of the hardest things that missionaries have to do often is go to churches and ask, and ask for money, for financial support for their ministry. But they shouldn't have to feel guilty about it, and yet so often they do. They're not asking for the money for themselves, but so that they can be an extension of us taking the message to the people that they're trying to reach. So when you give money to mission, it's not just giving, it's actually investing. It's, a, it's investing in the salvation of people that don't know Christ. It's investing in the growth of brothers and sisters around the world that need help in growing as Christians and followers of Jesus. Uh, and the third way to get involved is something like uh, is serving. Uh, things like Bible translation, did you know that there are about 3,850 languages in the, in, the, in the world that still need the Bible? Teaching is another way of getting involved. There are just hundreds of teachers that are needed in mission schools around the world so their parents can stay on the mission field while the kids are being taught. Um, things like church planting. This is huge needs. Uh, people sometimes say, do we still need missionaries today? We do. But the good thing is that sometimes missionaries aren't all white. You know, there are many different nationalities that are being involved in mission today. Let me read you something briefly um, uh, that I came across this week. Uh, in the Presbyterian Church, we've got not just a state moderator, but we've got a, a national moderator. His name is John Wilson. John has just been in Malawi, and this is something that he wrote uh, that I picked up this week. Uh, picture neatly swept bare ground with not a speck of debris, leaf or twig. The ground is so neat and clean you can see the sweep marks from the broom. This clan's nearest water supply is a borehole, a torturous two kilometres away. There's no electricity, no English, no school or church. The nearest school and central church, Africa Presbyterian Church, is a vigorous five kilometres walk away. This is the village of my friend Moses. The only English that uh, they have comes from a niece who made it through to level 12 at school. Many of the older folk have lived in this village all their lives with no ability to read or write in any language. Imagine your entire life contained within the confines of this village. Uh, while there is a written language available and printed copies of the Bible, it's all inaccessible to them because they can't read. There's no Christian fellowship for miles, and the only access to Christian faith is word of mouth from older folk who know the faith and can remember to recite the verse of Scripture. Moses, one of Moses' plans is to build a prayer house in his family compound so they can meet for Christian fellowship without trekking. But there's 10,000 other remote villages like this in this country of Malawi. Who will come for me, with me for this ministry? The folk are hungry, attentive, wide-eyed and responsive. But who will come? It feels strange to ask that in this day and age. Surely we've covered the globe. Haven't all the peoples been reached? Not so. I can show you village after village in Malawi where there is no access to or memory of the word of God. Illiteracy? Village constraints and old traditions still prevent hundreds of thousands of people from hearing the word of God and seeing the beauty of Jesus Christ. 
I wanted to stay, but after speaking from the scriptures about the need to be born again, the best I could do was to pray for them. I prayed for each by name. Then sadly, I had to trek out of the village, down the gully, back to the car, and the long drive to Blantyre. This is why I came. I want to reach these people for the love of Christ, one village at a time, but I need 10,000 lifetimes. I know, I know, I'm sounding like my missionary hero, David Livingston, the smoke of a thousand villages, but it gets to you. How can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? That's overseas. What about around us? What about around us? You might be interested to know that in our own backyard in Australia, it's estimated that 6% of all global international students are here in Australia. That's 534,000 students. I'm staggered when I read that. That's from government stats. So here are just some some rough uh, stats that I picked up. In Australia at the moment, there are 165,000 mainland Chinese students. Many of them know little about Christ. Is there something that you could do as a church or as an individual in trying to reach people like this? Uh, Sydney is an incredibly cosmopolitan uh, city with lots of students. There are 64,000 Indians studying in Australia. There are 32,000 Nepalese studying in Australia. Uh, Last year, the Nepalese government passed laws that made it illegal to tell somebody about Jesus with a view to them putting their faith in Christ. And a bunch of Nepalese pastors got together and said, right, this is our response. We want to plant 100 churches in the next 10 years and we want to try and put a Bible in every home. What a response to to a government that wants to try and suppress uh, the growth of the Christian church. When you tell someone from Nepal and Australia about Christ, you're doing something that's illegal back in their home country. What about something like Saudi Arabia? 5,000 Saudis studying in Australia. Very hard to tell them about Jesus in Saudi Arabia, but you can tell them here. It's estimated that by 2025, on current trends, the number of international students will double. If missionaries like Hudson Taylor and others from previous generations could come to Sydney today and see the the cosmopolitan nature of Sydney, they'd be stunned at the opportunities that, that we have. So it's not just students. We're going through this massive immigration boom. And you get... I hear Christian people sometimes complaining about it, etc. You know, why can't we just have white Australia? But friends, God's doing great things. He's leading people here. And he's leading them in such a way that we've got the opportunity to reach them here in ways that we can't back in their homeland. What great opportunities they are. Who are we? We are a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. We need to be uh, always on fire to tell people here about the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, mission is costly, and and it means taking risks. And when when I'm using the word mission, I'm not thinking just overseas. I'm thinking here as well, in our own backyard, because we've got that responsibility. Sometimes it means giving up things that we find comfortable. What's a symbol of Christianity? A cushion. No, it's a cross. 
and yet there are some Christians in this world that want to be a Christian. They want a comfortable, easy lifestyle that doesn't cost them, you know, where they can come to church and the pastor can feed them and they can just go home and have this nice, easy lifestyle. But friends, if we're going to engage in mission, it's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to put us out of our comfort zones. It's going to mean giving time to people that we might not feel like giving time to, but the love of Jesus constrains us. Where did Jesus ever say that following him would be easy? And what's God doing right now? He's calling people to himself. Yeah, I love that hymn, the, the day you gave us Lord has ended. And it's got this beautiful picture. You know, he, here are Christians, they're singing this hymn, the, the, the night is falling, and yet somewhere across the globe the sun is rising and there are people there who are rising, getting up out of bed to sing the praise of, of the Lord Jesus. What's God doing? He's gathering people from every tribe and tongue and language. And that, that is a great thing. Just think of the people that in the last 20 to 30 minutes while we've been here thinking about the Bible, think of the people across the globe that have come to Christ. And it's happening in, in some incredibly surprising places and incredibly surprising ways. And where's it all leading? Well, if you look to Revelation 5, you see that, that amazing scene in Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10, is the throne room of heaven. There's a scroll, and no one's there who can open it until the Lord Jesus steps forward to open it. And this is what uh, the people there in Revelation 5 sing. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. And so there's this theme that runs from Exodus 19 to 1 Peter, and here to, to Revelation 5, where God's people, they're a kingdom and they're priests, and they're to serve the whole earth uh, through the work of the gospel through bringing glory to God. And there are people there from every ethnic group and every language and every country. It's a rich and vast collection. Uh, There's a similar passage in Revelation 7, uh, verses, I think, verses 9 and 10. And and we're told there that the the number of people before the throne of God on on the final day is more than can be numbered. Why are we told that it's more than can be numbered? That's a challenge uh, for the accountants. I think it's telling us this that all of God's purposes will be achieved. That we're not to think that somehow heaven will be empty, but that all of God's people will be there. And so I find this an incredibly exciting picture because if we, if we truly grasp what God is doing here and calling people to himself, we'll say, yes, Lord, I want to be involved, please. Yes, call me, send me, lead me, whether it's my own backyard or some other country. But please... Take me, because God's purposes are exciting. We don't want to be a church that says, mission's very important, and yet by the things that we do or don't do, we end up actually denying that it is important. This is what God is doing in this world, calling to his people to himself. And so we want to get on board, because it's God's mission. Let's pray. Now, Father, we thank you and praise you for what you're doing in this world to bring honour and glory to yourself. Uh, We thank you, Father, for calling us to know you in the first place. And we pray that you would take us wherever you've placed us, in our workplace, our homes, our families, and that you might use us so that from our lips... 
people will hear about the Lord Jesus Christ and so bring you honour and glory and praise. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.